Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, January 31st, and we're talking about the defense industry. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool contributor Lou Whiteman via Skype. How's it going, Lou? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, we've got the polar vortex coming through, single-digit wind shells here in here in the D.C. area. Being from Alabama, it's been a little bit of an adjustment, uh, but we're making it through. How are you doing in your neck of the woods? We are 33 degrees. I just looked at the window. We are 33 degrees in Atlanta, which I guess sounds pretty warm compared to um, compared to up there. But I, I'm sick of it. I'm ready for spring. Yeah, tell me about it. I, I'm ready for uh, for shorts weather coming back through. Um, so today we're talking about the defense industry, and we're going to talk about several different things. We're going to talk about what's been going on with the government shutdown, and we're going to talk about you know what uh, the government has been talking about when it comes to the needs of the military uh, into the future. Um, but first, Lou, before we before we dive too deep into that, I just want you to talk about how significant is the government as just a customer uh, for these defense contractors, and and how important you know are are, are what's going on in Washington D.C. to you know their bottom line. Mm-hmm. Well, this is sort of the trade-off of this industry. I mean, the good news is is you have a customer who, so far for two hundred years in, has been able to pay its bills and is pretty reliable on that. However, you are reliant on that one customer. Increasingly, in recent years, there has been erratic behavior with that customer. Uh, and in this case, the Pentagon was not shut down, which certainly helps these defense contractors, but they do a lot more than just serve the Pentagon. They do, do a lot of the IT work for different agencies that were shut down. They do a lot of work for NASA and other and Homeland Security who were involved in the shutdown. So yeah, this, this adds a huge layer of uncertainty to a business that is, as you say, very reliant on that one customer. Yeah, just to give you some numbers on the shutdown, obviously it was the longest one in history at 35 days, and we're still not 100% sure whether it's over for good. We've got this continuing resolution in place that, that is going to keep the government temporarily open until February 15th, but you know there could be another shoe to drop. Uh, so there's definitely some uncertainty uh, for, these, for these defense contractors. Uh, one way that these uh, defense companies were impacted uh, during the shutdown uh, was the ability to follow through on some foreign arms sales that had been taking place recently because the Departments of State and Commerce were both shut down. Can you talk about the effects of that on on some of the defense contractors in the U.S.? Sure, sure. Yeah, as, as you say, for all these foreign sales, there's a few different programs that we do foreign sales, some through the State Department, and uh, some just need approval from Commerce. But they do need to be rubber stamped, or and sometimes it, it can be controversial. Uh, the international sales is a big push of this administration, and it is expected to grow. It was over $55 billion last year. They're hoping for more this year. So this is a significant chunk of revenue that did shut down. I mean, the good news is it was early in the quarter. Uh, we're mostly talking about the first quarter of 2019. There's a lot of time to play catch up. Uh, the State Department officials really believe that it won't it won't mess up the year. It could have a small effect in the first quarter of 2019, but hopefully they're back at work. They and most of what was in the pipeline was pretty non-controversial, so it should be a matter of just getting it out the door. But that is certainly a huge risk for more for the first quarter of 2019, but a, a huge risk for these companies and their numbers. Sure, and and then outside of the foreign arms sales, you know, were there any companies in particular that may have been more affected now, by the shutdown than others? Like, how, how did those chips kind of fall across the industry and the companies that operate in it? 
Well, I mean, fortunately for the big guys, they are big companies. And again, this is mostly a first quarter 2019 early in the quarter. So there's a lot of time for reimbursement, a lot of time to catch up. Uh, one company that it feels like could be uh, impacted more than others is SAIC, which is a government services contractor. They do a lot of IT work. They do a lot of work. Uh, doing systems. They have a lot of work with NASA. Uh, they are unfortunately on a calendar that their quarter ends January 31st. So they are both a smaller revenue company. So any hit is going to be felt disproportionately. And it is in the current quarter. It's all going to be uh, it's all going to be soaked up. They've been pretty public warning Wall Street that there could be an impact to the first quarter, which make or to the current quarter, which makes me think that they are, it is concerned. There was a number. It's a few weeks old now, but on January seventh, they met with uh, investors and said it was a fifty million dollar impact so far, and plus maybe about ten million dollar in employee compensation for work being not done. That's going to have to be hopefully reimbursed. But, um, you know, it's, it's a company of maybe a billion dollars, a little over a billion dollars in uh, revenue expected in a quarter. Uh, with how long the shutdown went, went, went it, it definitely could take a toll on their on their eventual quarter that ends at the end of the month. And I guess that will be our first look at, you know, how any of these companies was affected by the shutdown. We, we had a lot of defense contractors reporting earnings uh, just in this past week, uh, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Raytheon, Northrop, of course, those numbers are not embracing a significant chunk of the government shutdown. However, uh, they did give uh, relatively muted guidance uh, looking out into next year. Can you talk about that a little bit, Lou? Sure. Yeah. No, this is this is earnings weeks for these companies. And so we're just digesting them now. But uh, they all, all of the big four, Lockheed, Northrop, General Dynamics, and uh, Raytheon have all surprised me and I think surprised the markets with their conservative guidance. And I think a lot of what you're seeing is uncertainty about when some of these big, long, long, long big multi-year items are going to actually get paid and how quickly things will happen. Uh, Lockheed Martin took the step of adding uh, impact of government shutdown to their forward-looking statements as a possible a thing that could go wrong, which as far as I know, that is brand new. That wasn't there before, which which means even in a company, they are the biggest defense contractor in the world. Even at their scale, this is something that they are thinking of and they're something that they are factoring into, in, in, into what could go wrong for them, especially given the, um, the budget negotiations that are coming up on the horizon. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit, Lou. You know, with this shutdown lasting for as long as it has, it really highlights kind of the divisions between the the two parties in Congress and this the inability to come to an agreement. When you look at the 2020 budget, uh, a lot of you know those two groups reaching an agreement as to how much money we're going to spend on defense and the rest of the government is really important to the thesis for these defense contractors. It, can you talk about the uncertainty that we're, you know, of what we're looking at into the 2020 budget and, and how we should think about that as investors? Yeah, very much so. This is something investors have to be watching. Uh, to give you a, a, a quick history, uh, right now we are still working under the Budget Control Act of 2011, which this was, if you remember back to the previous administration where we had mixed go split government and they weren't doing a great job of coming to an agreement on things like budgets. Uh, lawmakers passed a law basically saying if you can't compromise, then on both the defense and the civil side, there was going to be what they called sequestration, which was a massive across the board cut. Uh, that actually went into effect. It, it was not enough of a, um, of, of a threat to, uh, to, to force them to compromise. And uh, 
defense stocks were hit pretty hard during that time. Uh, with the new administration, we had a couple of years of uh, unified government. We had a two-year budget deal that included Pentagon funding. That's why they weren't part of the shutdown. A lot of people don't realize, though, that was only a two-year deal. And we're coming up now in fiscal 2020. Without a new compromise, we are going to revert back to those sequestration levels. Uh, at, I've, I've seen estimates all across the board, and there's a lot of accounting tricks you can do. But this could cost the Pentagon upwards of $100 billion in spending per year. Uh, they can't stop paying the troops. So a lot of that is going to be deferred uh, procurement or deferred modernization of IT. Uh, it's really hard. The, the, this recent shutdown was kind of the appetizer uh, to the main course, which is that 2020 budget. Seeing how that played out, it's really hard to have a lot of optimism right now that the budgeting process will go smoothly. Hopefully, they can eventually get something done. I'm not predicting we're going to return to sequestration, but it is a huge risk. It's something you have to be watching. Uh, long term, I think the companies will be fine. Long term, as we'll talk about later, there are a lot of things that need to be done, a lot of spending that needs to be done. But this could certainly impact two, 2019 spending. It could certainly even go into 2020 if the deal is reached late, if there's uncertainty, or if they kind of kick the can and um, projects have to be delayed. Sure, Lou. And, you know, if we go into sequestration, what kind of adjustments might you know these big contractors have to make to their operations to absorb that and kind of wait out you know the the, the low times until you know we can reach another consensus in Congress? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think what they how they modeled it last time, and unfortunately, they have recent history here. Is you know a lot of the big needle moving projects for these companies, they're not going to disappear. We're not going to stop buying aircraft carriers. We're not going to stop buying F-35s. They can sort of proceed as business as usual, although they might have to slow the scale or slow, slow productivity. It's for near-term results, for quarterly results, it, it, it creates ugly comparisons and it definitely slows the business down. You have to be a long-term investor to, to weather that storm. And what we learned last time, and I think we'll learn this time, is, is that in the end, there will be a resolution. But, um, but really, it, what we saw is these, co these companies that just kind of did what they could on expense side and and slowed production to levels that they thought the the government was going to order. Uh, the the real companies that got hit are these uh, the, we like to call them the Beltway Bandits, the the government IT companies that are increasingly important for um, you know a, a lot of the IT is being outsourced by the government. Those projects are the ones that were really easy to bring to a halt. And um, I, I would anticipate those companies, uh, SAIC being one, uh, Lados is a huge one. Those are the companies that are going to be the hardest hit if we do indeed hit sequestration again. Yes, yeah, something to watch for investors. Lou, you mentioned the long term. And you know, let's talk about the long term and really where the bull case might be on a lot of these defense contractors is that there's going to have to be a lot of spending when it comes to our arsenal in, in the future. And there's two things we want to talk about. Uh, we want to talk about investment in the nuclear triad, really bring that up to modernity, as well as the uh, later in the show, we'll talk about the new missile defense review that came back uh, in January. When it comes to our, our, our nuclear arsenal, it's really reaching the end of its useful life. So we're uh, going to have to put some serious investment into it to bring uh, the, those resources up to date. Uh, what can you say about 
just what needs to be done when it comes to you know our, our nuclear arsenal and what kind of uh, how much money is going to need to be pumped into those uh, resources. Sure, sure. There, the, the the big overriding themes, and this applies here, and it applies what we'll talk about later, is is, is things that we all know. the The world is not getting safer. It's a dangerous place, and we do need uh, weaponry. The second part is is we are now paying the price for the the so called Cold War dividend. When the Cold War ended, the United States was the only superpower. Uh, not that the Pentagon spending went away, but we did kind of go go into a lull. And we are now using Cold War era technology competing with a, in theory, a resurgent Russia, a resurgent China. And uh, yes, that means spending, that means modernization. Uh, the CBO just updated a, a, a study on the triad. They determined almost $500 billion, $494 billion needs to be spent in the next 10 years on, uh, on nuclear triad modernization. Uh, that's up considerably 20% or more from their 2017 estimate. Part of that is, is we kind of have a roadmap for some of this spending and part of it now we're getting into the years where hopefully those investments will be made. So some of that increase was expected, but uh, it's a massive amount. Half a trillion dollars is going to go into new bombers, new subs, new rockets, uh, new warheads to put on them, plus all the support. Uh, it's 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 a huge area, and uh, you know the details. Some of them have to be worked out, but it's it's almost guaranteed revenue for some of these companies, the lucky winners of these, because it's 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 a huge priority for the United States. Yeah, Lou, and you alluded to this, and and, and I should have asked you this off the top. Um, can you, for our listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk about what the nuclear triad is, or what what it means when we say uh, the nuclear triad? Sure, sure. So there's three ways that uh, that we deliver nuclear weapons. Uh, which we have our missiles, we have bombers, and then we have our submarines, which is our, perhaps the most important because that's the deterrent. The it's um it's it's a grim Cold War tale, but the idea was is that we needed to be able to launch, and we also needed to be ready for the event that we were surprised. And even if the homeland was decimated, if there's a submarine out there that can quickly respond. That's the best deterrent against launching to the United States. It's it's the formula that's still in place. Uh, there's some debate about some parts of it, but uh, all it, this is how we defend the country, and this is how we think of nuclear weapons. And um, all of our equipment is getting old. It's time for renewal. Uh, the, these are big ticket items, unfortunately, for the United States spending. Yeah, and let's talk about some of these items. Uh... Northrop Grumman, Grumman is developing a new bomber, the B-21, uh, and, and the number that I saw is between now and, and 2028, the Pentagon is expected to spend $49 billion uh, on that program. Uh, can you talk about That's the significance right. of, of that uh, aircraft for Northrop Grumman as well as for you know our defense arsenal as a country? That that is the that is the Keystone project for Northrop Grumman. They they won that bomber, and it's it's been a slow road. Uh, it was, of of all the parts of the triad, that's probably the most controversial, simply because even though it is stealth, uh, with technology, it is increasingly hard to get a bomber in place over an enemy in a war zone. Uh, this is a huge expense. They're doing their best to modernize it. It's replacing an aircraft that isn't that old, the, the, the stealth bomber from our youth, uh, in part because there's a feeling they did not forward proof that enough. Uh, the downside is they are trying to forward-proof this one, but it is incredibly expensive. Uh, this is a plane that is going to be a significant portion of Northrop Grumman's uh, revenue for the years to come. Uh, there's a set 
there's a set number in place. The Air Force, if anything, says we need more of those. The Air Force is trying to expand uh, its fleet, in, in both attackers and bombers. Uh, there's no way this is going to be cut if or cut completely. Uh, there is a little bit of long-term risk to Northrop, though, if this project will ever be what they hope it will be, which is, yeah, 50 billion plus uh, just monster. That, that That is a huge portion of their revenue for well into the next decade. Yeah, Lou, and let's talk about another monster uh, program, and that's the, the new submarines that are, that are being developed currently, the Columbia-class sub under development. Uh, the numbers I saw there is that there are 12 subs planned at a cost of $107 billion over the next 10 years. Again, mm-hmm. sa- same, same as for the bomber. Can you talk about the importance uh, of, of that program, uh, both for the defense contractors who are developing it, as well as you know for our defense capabilities? Mm-hmm. Uh, Naval is a big part of the uh, bull story on General Dynamics. They're not as exposed to some of this aerospace, and they're not as big on space as, as some of the other contractors. They have a lot of Army land gear, which, um, while modernizing, isn't as sexy and doesn't tend to be as as big ticket as as the submarines or, or aircraft. Uh, this is out of General Dynamics Electric Boat uh, subsidiary. They're working with Huntington Ingalls, who is their primary um that's our our nuclear carrier contractor and so they'll get some revenue here too but this is a ship this is a boat that as i said is designed to be the deterrent this is the reason why a foreign power does not want to attack the united states because even if they work even if they get the sneak on us there are these state-of-the-art submarines out there with brand new warheads that can fire back. Uh, there is, again, some debate over how many we need. I mean, a lot of the, the, the numbers, the dozen or so, is based on Cold War planning. These are better submarines. However, you do want them patrolling the whole ocean. I don't see, I, I would be shocked if we don't get a full allotment of this. Uh, General Dynamics has had a lot of things going not their way in recent years. Columbia class is early. It's it's not really a contributor to earnings right now. But uh, again, if you, if you look out a few years, one of the reasons why General Dynamics works as an investment is, is that the Columbia class, as it matures, is, go, the, is going to see margins. It's a priority. We're not going to see a cutback. And there's pretty reliable revenue streams out of that going out a long time, which, you know, in the investing world, you don't get that with many, many sectors. Sure. You said full set. When you're talking about that, how how big, big or small is that relative to the dozen that we're talking about? When you talk about that, oh, long-term I, I, outside? I, yeah, I meant the dozen. I, I yeah. mean, I think okay. there's an outside chance. I mean, some in the Navy would like to see more. I'd be surprised that there's an outside chance you might see that shaved, but that would be in the out year of of, of this um, decade we're talking about. Where if there is risk to that program, you have to go out nearly a decade to find it. I I think that's a pretty reliable program for General Dynamics as far as we can reasonably look out. Sure. And then to kind of close out the triangle of the nuclear triad, let's talk about what is being developed when it comes to our missile capabilities. Um, currently, Boeing's Minuteman is the only operational uh, ICBM in the arsenal. Uh, mm-hmm. So there there's really a priority to, to maybe c- come up with it with a new delivery vehicle or at least New options for what, what, what you know how we can deliver you know our warheads. Um, can you talk about what's going on when it comes to that program and and what companies are involved? 
Sure, sure. Yeah, the Minuteman, it's been modernized, but this is, again, this is a 1960s rocket that we're using. And, and due to treaties and due to uh, cost cuts, uh, we used to have a number of ICBMs. Now we don't. The Minuteman is our go-to rocket. It needs to be replaced. That's the only part of this triad that we don't know who the eventual winner is. And it's going to be a big deal for either Northrop or Boeing. Right now, Northrop and Boeing each got about $300 million to develop their model and uh, for it's going to be an old fashioned bake off for a very large deal. Northrop spent $10 billion to buy Orbital Science in part for this particular. I mean, there's a lot that they'd like to do in space and space is definitely an area that they they think they're going to see growth. But uh, the Minuteman, the ability to offer both uh, the, the offer the whole package. Uh, this is for, for Northrop that doesn't have Boeing's commercial exposure and which does have some programs. It does have the B-21, but this would be a very big win for Northrop. This is this is almost would justify the orbital science deal or not. And um, they want it. Boeing definitely wants it, too. It's going to be very interesting. It's going to take a, a it's, it's not going to come this year, but it's going to be very interesting to watch this big because you don't get this big of a, um, a contract coming up very often, and we don't have a lot of them on the horizon right now. Yeah, I think across this nuclear triad, I think the takeaway for investors is there is a lot of money on the table up for grabs. It is something that is key uh, to our, our, our defense arsenal uh, coming into the future. So we're going to have to spend the money on it sooner or later. Um, definitely going to be a bullish uh, sign for, for these defense contractors going forward. Mm -hmm. um, You're right. Exactly right. Uh, you can you can maybe wonder about individual quarters at the exact timing, but over the long haul, if you're a long-term investor, uh, this is pretty close to guarantee that 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 these programs are going to be invested in, and that that this is revenue that's going to be coming in. Okay, Lou. Let's talk about the missile defense review that I mentioned earlier. It came out on, on January 17th. And it's focused on really improving uh, the U.S.'s ability to defend against missile attacks. You know, sometimes they say defense is the best is the best offense. Maybe that maybe that's what we're thinking about. Uh, uh, you know, from our military perspective today, uh, can you talk about you know what what was on that wish list when it when it comes to the the new uh, missile defense review and and kind of break that down for us a little bit? Sure, sure. But this this is part of a, a, a change in focus of the Pentagon. We spent a lot of time focused on uh, fighting insurgents in, in m mostly in the Middle East. Uh, there is a renewed focus on major power conflict, as they call it, which uh, sounds sounds lovely, I know. But uh, part of this is looking at where Russia and China is today and how we stack up. Uh, one area, hypersonics, uh, missiles that travel five times the speed of sound. Arguably, Russia is ahead of us. Arguably, China might even be ahead of us. These are missiles that our current defenses cannot, uh, just, just can't even begin to deal with now. Uh, we need to change that. We also need our own offerings. We are behind in giving up, in, 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 uh, in, in having our own offering to counter that. Uh, this is an area where we are already seeing Pentagon spending. Uh, this is an area where Lockheed Martin really stands out. They won $1.4 billion in contracts last year. Uh, one of them in the Pentagon in their notes justifying that contract said, quote, no other contractor has this level of design maturity and talked about hundreds of millions of dollars in redundant costs if they went with anyone other than Lockheed Martin just to get 
that other contractor up to speed. Uh, this is an area, it's not going to be a $50 billion area like the bomber, but uh, this is an area where you're going to see a lot of R&D. Uh, the contractors love the R&D because it ends up in other places and you know, they're famous, there's the Lockheed Skunk Works, uh, things like that. This is an area where th that's really going to fuel the R&D inside of Lockheed and inside some of these contractors for years to come. Uh, another area is missile defense. We, the THAAD system is another Lockheed system. The Aegis combat system is kind of the computers that run it, is another Lockheed system. Uh, Raytheon with its radars and with its Patriot, uh, Raytheon has the radars that run to THAAD. It has its Patriot missiles. Uh, these are all good systems. Uh, THAAD has been in the news a lot because it's our primary deterrent to uh, North Korea but none of them are ready for a hypersonic world. We have got to figure that out. The most likely cost-efficient way is to pay these contractors to make the existing systems better. Uh, so that is, again, a huge opportunity for Lockheed and a huge opportunity for Raytheon. Yeah, I mean, the, the significance of these hypersonic weapons in that you know, our, our defense capabilities cannot, I mean, they're too fast for our defense capabilities to stop them is really something we, that is important for us to defend against and to have in our offering. Another uh, kind of on the wish list when it comes to our, our, our missile, uh, missile defense uh, repertoire uh, comes, you know, takes place in space. Uh, mm -hmm. we're, we're seeing initiatives to install more sensors in space to be able to track uh, missiles and kind of uh, weapons as they travel in, in that uh, arena. Can you talk a little bit about what uh, the Pentagon is asking for uh, when it comes to space and, and what we're doing there? Sure. And we should say that this is perhaps the most interesting part of the conversation. However, it's probably the least certain. Uh, I said before that the submarines are going to get bought, the bombers are going to get bought. Uh, a lot of the missile defense space right now, uh, it's, it's in some cases discussing technologies that haven't yet been invented or or at least improved to the point where they could actually be uh, put in place. There are things that are going to get spent. Uh, you mentioned sensors. We need to be able to know the second a launch happens that it happened anywhere in the world. Uh, that is increasingly difficult in the world of modern modern rockets. Uh, the Congress has authorized Pentagon to spend the money to figure out how to solve this problem. Uh, it could be new military-grade satellites. It could be attachments to commercial satellites. I think the most likely option is a massive fleet of small satellites that could blanket the whole world. Uh, a lot of this is classified. We don't know where it is. We don't, you know, we don't know how close it is. We may not even really get a clear picture of what they eventually um, choose to do. Uh, one company I'd look at, though, is a uh, very under-the-radar under defense company, Harris Corp., which does defense uh, electronics and sensors. Uh, their CEO on the conference call mentioned um, the potential for a massive new constellation of classified small satellites on the horizon as a, as a real chance for the company to um, grow. I'm pretty sure he was talking about this space sensor layer, and it's a, it may be an indication. It could be an indication where he hopes the Pentagon goes. Or it could be an indication of where he's been led to think the Pentagon's going to go. Harris, Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop, all these companies will definitely benefit from that. Yeah, and it appears that space is becoming a more and more significant part of our defense initiatives. Obviously, you had the Space Force announcement a few months ago from the president, and part of this uh, a missile defense initiative uh, has to do with 
being able to actually shoot down uh, uh, missiles in space. And this is, you know, folks who, who may have been around for a while might remember the, the Reagan Star Wars program back in the 80s, and the shopping list has not changed in 30 years. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what we're uh, looking to attempt uh, to do, probably over the, the long term, uh, when it comes to satellites uh, intercepting uh, missiles in space? Mm -hmm. You're right. This is Star Wars all over again, and the concept is the same. Uh, we've we've progressed a lot technologically since the Reagan years. It's technically feasible, but that doesn't mean it's likely. It's it's still very hard. Uh, what we're talking about here is is the ability to shoot an ICBM down. And you have to do that right at the launch phase to really be successful. Now, to do that, you only have a window of maybe seconds. Uh, to be able to have something in space capable to detect and launch within seconds, we need to have we need to have these satellites everywhere, including a, lots of satellites over enemy territory. Uh, it, the, the logistics, if you're talking about a rocket shooting through the atmosphere and getting to the launch phase to detect and do it, maybe thousands of, 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 of these armed satellites in space to make this possible. Again, technically, can we do it? Can we shoot down a rocket? Yes, that's what the Patriot's been doing. That's what the THAAD's been doing. There's a new Raytheon system that does it, all of these from the ground. Uh, but having them in place so it's an effective weapon or effective defense, that's a really, really complicated and a really, really expensive proposition, especially since right now we're only targeting these at about 50%. So you need some redundancy built in there, which just means all the more rockets. Yeah, it sounds like a very difficult engineering problem to even make that happen. You know, we, we talk about the difficulty of hitting a rocket with another rocket, uh, you know, making you know, the math to make that work is difficult. Another uh, development we're seeing, though, is maybe over the longer term, we don't have to have a rocket. We may be able to use a directed energy or a laser or something like that uh, to intercept it. You know, you get the advantage of it travels at the speed of light. So for these hypersonic, extremely fast weapons, it doesn't matter because you're never going to go faster than the light that we're shooting at that. Can you talk about the challenges behind that program, both in space, of course, but as well, you know, a ground-based uh, missile intercept program? Uh, that, that operates through a laser uh, mm -hmm. delivery. Mm -hmm. No, you're you're absolutely right. In in theory, laser is the solution to a lot of our problems. Uh, it's easier to rearm in space. It's much faster. Uh, again, when you're talking about a matter of seconds to get something fired, uh, a, a laser makes a lot of sense. Uh, unfortunately, easier easier said than done. If you have the laser in space, it needs a certain amount of energy just to penetrate our atmosphere. If you think about the energy that's already required just to do damage and halt an ICBM, you're talking about an incredibly powerful laser up in space. Uh, it, it's cap are we capable of it? Yes, but uh, the, the battery requirements, the recharging requirements, it's just going to be a huge satellite that in theory could be pretty easily targeted itself. Uh, the laser helps with timing, but it doesn't mean we just stick one over the United States and uh, and that's fine. You still, you may not need the thousands, but you need hundreds of very, very expensive, very complex and somewhat vulnerable satellites out there to make it work. Uh, it's not reasonable that we're going to see this now. Again, technically, is it possible? Yes. Uh, could we demonstrate it? Yes. But are we going to build a fleet of these that could effectively protect our country anytime soon? 
that's hard to imagine at best from the contractor's perspective that this this is intriguing enough that there is going to be R&D and uh, the, the Defense Department is spreading money around quite a bit in, in, in relatively modest amounts just to, to work on advancing this. But it's an incredibly difficult problem to solve with the battery capacity, the recharging, and just dealing with things in space that um, we're not ready to solve it. it, it it's, it's still on the drawing board. Yeah, definitely something to watch as we look out over the long term. You know, we talked last week about batteries. This is another instance where, where you know, battery technology is going to be really important, even touching the defense space. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go ahead. Oh, and yeah, just the bigger picture thing too that we have to consider as we're doing this is is there is sort of a um, a, a moral dilemma of, of what we're talking about here is is pretty automated systems in space with lethal weapons. By default, we have to let them work on their own. There is not time for a human to analyze the data, say, yes, this is indeed a launch, fire. We have got to get these systems to a point where they can reliably say, yes, this is an ICBM with with dangerous intentions and it needs to be taken out. Uh, There is a real risk that you know, if something goes wrong, that there is a laser or a rocket up in space that's going to be launching an attack on a foreign nation when they are just putting up a, a weather satellite. Uh, hopefully that wouldn't happen. That's an extreme example. But there is a lot to grapple with as, as we do this. Um, like I said, this is very neat. It's it's going to be R&D. It's going to be, it's going to be talked about for years to come. I would not invest on this now, though, thinking that this is going to happen within a reasonable time period. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows about the hype cycle. I think, I think when it comes to when it comes to these directed energy and laser technologies, you know, it's very exciting to promise what we can see in the future. But the the capabilities to actually carry that out at scale, um, we're going to need to see some some additional R and D, but before those can really, uh, you know, move up. Um, one last thing I do want to mention when it comes to the missile defense program, and you mentioned this in one of the articles that I'd read on Fool.com recently, is there's new opportunities uh, for, for these aerospace companies when it comes to missile defense. However, uh, some shipbuilders may be impacted as, as we shift uh, how we structure our missile defense uh, resources. Can you talk a little bit about what trickle-down impact they, that may have outside of uh, the missile industry? Mm-hmm. So all of, our, all of our branches of government, as is normally the case, makes a case for why they need investment, why they need to expand. I think the Navy's case was the best. The Navy the Navy is worn down. Uh, there is talk, at the, the president ran on the idea of a 355-ship fleet, which would be a, a pretty substantial, we're under 300 right now, in part because the Navy's role is so vast and, uh, and its territory is so vast. Uh, one of the Navy's important job right now is their destroyers are out on the Pacific, most of the Pacific, but all over the world. They are our eyes and ears for missile defense right now. The the Aegis system that's on the uh, on our destroyers is our primary detection system for for a lethal threat. Uh, hopefully, with these new sensors and hopefully with this new push to get better at missile detection. Uh, the destroyers won't be needed. You know, we're, we're talking years down the line, but but the the number of missions that these destroyers will have to do for mi- for missile deterrence will decrease. In theory, that should ease the burden on the Navy and perhaps let them get by with fewer ships. 
this is what well, everything we're talking about is so expensive and we are in a time of budget battles. It's going to be natural to find or to look for ways to reduce overall spending in the next five, 10 years. I think a decent case can be made by lawmakers that look, if, as we improve with other forms of missile defense, we can take this burden off the Navy. Maybe we don't need that 355 ship fleet. Uh, maybe we don't need to support all of the sailors and all of the all of the um, the support staff that goes with that, which is a huge budget buster. Uh, I. The Navy is still growing. The Navy is going to modernize. General Dynamics and Huntington Ingalls are the two contractors most tied to the Navy. This isn't a reason to sell them, but it certainly is something that investors should watch because I, I, I think a reasonable case can be made that maybe the Navy will be able to get by with less uh, with all these other developments going on. Sure, Lou. It's something to watch for investors, particularly those invested in uh, General Dynamics and Huntington Ingalls. Um, before we go away, you know, we've got, kind of given a, a good overview of what's impacting these defense contractors on the short term when it comes to the budget, as well as the opportunities over the long term with these new weapon delivery uh, vehicles. Uh, as you look out into the defense industry today, which companies or company or companies are you most excited about their future prospects? Lockheed Martin can't help but impress. Lockheed Martin for years uh, was tied to the F-35. And I mean, the, the F-35 is an amazing program. It's going to be a trillion dollar program for Lockheed and its uh, subcontractors over the life of the program. Uh, but what Lockheed has done very well, especially in the last few years, is that there's a lot more than just the F-35 to get excited about. Uh, we talked about hypersonics. We talked about their missile defense and their missiles. Uh, there are just a lot of ways for Lockheed to win, even in, in this current, uh, looking at the recent earnings, and uh, I just wrote something about this now, is that you, you know the short term, 2019, we'll see what the budget does. But over time, there are so many ways that Lockheed Martin can win. It's a great company to just hold on to and weather the storm. Uh, among the big guys, if there was one that feels like a bargain, but I've been saying this a while and, 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 and they haven't come through for me yet, but General Dynamics has been in the penalty box almost since the Great Recession because of its Gulfstream arm. Uh, the, the business jet industry just has not come back from the recession. Uh, I believe Gulfstream is coming back. I believe as it does, General Dynamics will leave the penalty box and its multiple relative to its peers will improve. So you should, it should outperform its peers. Uh, you know, I, I said that six months ago, we're still waiting. I, I still believe it. I, I still like General Dynamics, but again, I, I, I'm losing confidence that this is even a 2019 story. So I, I would understand investors not jumping in right now. All right, listeners, that's two for your watch list in the defense space. Thanks for coming on, Lou, and thanks for talking to us about everything that's going on in this really fascinating industry. And uh, happy to have you on soon to uh, follow back up. Sure, sure. Yeah. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. Uh, for Lou Whiteman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Okay, Lou, with Super Bowl Sunday coming up, you know, I'd really be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about what's going on uh, this weekend. You're in Atlanta. The Super Bowl uh, between the Patriots and the Rams is taking place there this week. What have you seen around town with the prep for the big game upcoming? 
it's uh, it, it's been fun. There's there's a lot going on. The, the Super Bowl Fan Fest experience. Uh, I I haven't personally gone, but I, a lot of my friends, a lot of my 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 daughter's friends have been down there. They put on a good show. Uh, there's a lot of concerts this weekend. I'm kind of looking forward to the Foo Fighters Saturday night. We may um, park outside and watch that. Uh, I I think there's a football game at some point, but the football game. Is, is is very much a tiny part of this weekend, which which is it's it's fun to see. Yeah, as we talk about the game, uh, do you have anybody you're rooting for on Sunday? Do you have a pick for us? Uh, what are you thinking? Well, to full disclosure, I'm a Saints fan, so I'm probably a little bitter, but I, I I refuse to believe a coach ten years younger than Tom Brady is going to be able to do what what nobody else seemingly can do. So, uh, uh, reluctantly, I, I know this is not a popular pick, but uh, I I. I just can't pick against the Patriots. Yeah, let's uh, let's let Austin Morgan in on, on this talk go around the horn. What do you think in, uh, for the game on Sunday, Austin? I think if the Rams play a clean game, they might be able to take down the Goliath. Yeah, I, I tell you, for me, you know, my heart wants the Rams. You know, I want the the young coach, the upstarts. You know, in a new town, uh, really fun offense, fun team to watch to come away with it. But my head really says the Patriots and. Uh, you know, our listeners have been listening for a while. Know I'm an Alabama football fan, so I'll give you a stat. Uh, going back to 2014, uh, every year uh, that New England has won the Super Bowl, Alabama has lost the national championship. And, and every year that Alabama has won the national championship, the Patriots have not won the Super Bowl. And wow. this year, the Alabama Crimson Tide lost to Clemson in the national championship game. And so That's I very think, brave of you to admit that, Nick. Yeah. Hey, hey, I'm there. And uh, I think this year, uh, even though my heart doesn't want to say it, I, I think the Patriots are going to come away with it in Atlanta, just like the Tide did last year at the National Championship game. Uh, I don't know how you beat Belichick and Brady, but I- I'm going to be looking forward to watching and uh, hoping with my, uh, with my, uh, my hope that uh, the Rams can somehow pull it out. Can, can I end this on a bitter note and say the one thing I'm absolutely sure of is that if Tom Brady needs a touchdown late in the game, that pass interference call will be called if it's the Patriots and not the Saints that are going up against the Rams defense. Put your tinfoil hats on, listeners. <laughs> maybe, they'll, maybe they'll give them a little pat on the shoulder and they'll throw a flag for roughing the passer. Exactly. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, you know, we'll all be looking forward to it, and uh, we'll come back next week, maybe follow up on uh, what happened in the big game. Thanks for coming on, Lou, and uh, let's do it again sometime.